0: that parable that Jesus told is a very interesting one, isn't it? And we always need to remember that when Jesus told parables, He told them as a Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish teacher, and therefore He meant that we should get one teaching topic out of it. When they told parables, it wasn't that we should concentrate on all the details, but that we should get the main point— Otherwise, we can miss the wood for the trees, as it were. And when Jesus told this particular parable, he doesn't intend us as Christians to be looking at all the various features of it and to puzzle over it and wonder if we're meant to be the wise virgins or the foolish ones with our lamps trimmed or not trimmed. It isn't that we're the bridesmaids, because in God's eternal purpose we have a far deeper deeper part to play than that. What is the church to be? Bridesmaids? The bride, of course. We are to be the bride of Christ. It's one of the great mysteries of the Bible, expressive of the depth of love and relationship and covenant that Jesus has with His church. You can't think of a more glorious human relationship than marriage. And Jesus uses that illustration, as does Paul, to show that our relationship with Him can be likened to a human marriage. It's a wonderful, glorious illustration. So we're not the bridesmaids. Who's going to settle for being a bridesmaid if she can be a queen, a bride? No, of course not. And so this isn't the intended teaching. Jesus' intended teaching in giving this parable is one simple truth. And what do you think it is? Be ready. It's what he finishes up with. Therefore, keep watch. Be ready. Be ready. And that's the word that he wants to bring to us today. It's a word that I'm afraid is absolutely burning in me at the present time, and I find that I'm speaking this in other situations too, and it may be that I've spoken about it here too. I I don't apologize for that. What is the use of giving people a message which God hasn't given you to give, or holding out on them what God is giving you to give? There are two terrible sins that preachers can make. One is to have nothing to say and to say it, and the other is to have something to say and not to say it. Well, I find I'm in that second category this morning. I have something to say, and I'm determined to say it. And uh, praise the Lord for that. But it boils down to that simple statement, get ready. Why? Because Jesus is coming very soon. And before He comes, He's given us very powerful statements in the Bible to say that the days are going to get very, very hard indeed before He comes. And we're going to need something to enable us to stand in those difficult days. Now, being disciples of Jesus, we follow Jesus, we learn from Jesus, we do what He says, and we become like Him. And because of it, we are to look at the way Jesus handled situations and to do what He did And when we're looking to discover how Jesus handled the appalling suffering of the cross, we're given a very, very wonderful clue as to how he did it. And because this is the way Jesus did it, this is the way we too are to do it. How are we to face the future as society turns against us? How are we to face the future as organized religion turns against us? those of us who believe the Bible and who believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. How are we to do it? Well, we do it like Jesus did. How did He do it? Well, turn to the letter to the Hebrews, will you? Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, particularly verse 2, but we'll pick it up in verse 1, which is the connecting statement to what's gone before. In chapter 11, the writer's been talking about the faithful of the Old Testament time, the great heroes of faith of Israel, the National Portrait Gallery, you might even call it. One by one, they appear before us and they encourage us across the running centuries with their tremendous resilience in the faith of, face of hideous odds. Their great faith carried them through. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And this next is the verse I want us to look at. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, that is, other people's sin, the sin of wicked men trying to destroy them as believers, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet Resisted to the point of shedding your blood? Not yet. That time would come, but the writing was well and truly on the wall, and they were already discovering the pain of being disciples of Jesus, the confiscation of their property, ridicule, ill treatment, being taken to prison. All those things had now started, but nobody had yet been martyred for his faith. But you'll notice how the writer says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood that time would certainly come, and it would come soon. And so now the writer of this great letter is out to prepare them so that when the time comes, they are in a good place to stand. And the secret is in the example of Jesus, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. The deepest, most terrible, most frightful suffering anyone was ever called upon to suffer, past, present, and future, was the experience of the passion of Jesus. So it's a moot point, isn't it? Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And so we know it's not an if, it's a when and a how but we need to be ready for it. And how should we be ready? Well, surely we should be ready as Jesus was. And what was it that prepared him and enabled him to stand and endure that ghastly experience? Well, here it is. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This joy that was set before the Lord Jesus, who set it before him? Well, obviously God the Father did. And so what was this joy that was set before him? Well, plainly, it was the joy of knowing where he was going. It was the joy of knowing who he was and whose he was. It was the joy of knowing his utter and absolute confidence in his heavenly Father, that even though he was going to go through this dreadful time, it was a means to an end, and that end was heaven itself. And so it is that we require that revelation of heaven, the glory of heaven, the glory of our status in God, that we're His sons and that nothing is going to shake that relationship. This is the joy that was set before Jesus and the joy that He wants set before you and me. And without that joy, without that revelation, without that blessed assurance, we're going to have an exceedingly difficult time of it because it is that revelation of glory that will enable us to stand in the difficult days that are now rapidly coming. There are, of course, some wonderful examples of it in the New Testament. Jesus sets the pace, but those who are his disciples follow him and run in the same direction, encouraged by the same wonderful joy set before them. So, would you like to turn back to Acts chapter 6, or is it Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, I think. Well, we'll split the difference. Acts chapter 7. <laughs> the first Christian martyr. Hebrew says we are called to be witnesses, and we are indeed. And the first of these witnesses given to us in the New Testament is Stephen. You may say, well, others were witnesses. Others spoke about Jesus. Well, they certainly did, but the word witness has got a technical meaning. Anybody know what the word is actually? What is the Greek word witness? Anybody know? Martus. And the more regular way to translate that word is martyr. No prizes for guessing what a martyr is. He's someone who pays with his life, He pays with his life rather than to turn his back upon the one he loves or believes in, and this is the case with Stephen. He faced death by stoning rather than deny his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so, this is a powerful, powerful demonstration of this great principle. And if you're familiar with the story of Stephen, you'll know that he stood in front of the Sanhedrin, the great Jewish court, defending himself giving testimony to his personal faith in Jesus, but going further than that, confronting these Jewish leaders with their own wickedness. That took a great deal of courage, did it not? And as you can imagine, these deeply religious people, who had very little love for God and an awful lot of love for religion, they hated what Stephen said. This message he brought them was bad news as far as they were concerned. It was, of course, the means of salvation, but they weren't interested in it. And so, on the basis, hate the message, shoot the messenger, that's exactly the attitude they adopted. And you can see it in verse 54, when they heard what Stephen had to say, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Isn't that wonderful? See, we were singing about it just now, weren't we, about falling down because of the revelation of the glory of the Lord. Hallelujah! And here we find it. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God in this glorious vision that Stephen had. Now, that Sanhedrin board, all those men, they didn't see that vision. You say, well, but surely if it was a vision, it was a a thing that people saw. Yes, but as we were seeing earlier, when we were talking about the opening of the eyes of my heart, it's that inner person that sees, isn't it? It's that inner revelation. Stephen saw it. They didn't. It was only possible to Stephen because he was born again and filled with God's Spirit, Things are possible for those of us who are born again, sons of God, who have been filled with his Spirit, that are quite impossible for people who are not believers. So we can praise the Lord for this divine reality that we see in all kinds of ways. But Stephen was given this revelation of the glory of heaven. And furthermore, he was given that revelation of the Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. Not quite. What does it tell us? Saw the Son of Man, sure enough, seated at the right hand of the Father, standing. How interesting. You don't find that in the New Testament. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, how come Stephen saw Him standing? Well, I think there's a very interesting, maybe a I don't know, some of you may not think this is correct, but I can only think of one explanation for this. And it is that because Stephen was the first to be martyred for his faith, this was such a significant moment in heaven, such a tremendous excitement that even Jesus was up off his throne, cheering him home. That's my idea, and I think it's tremendous. I can well imagine that that was the case. And he saw it, he saw that vision of heaven the glory of heaven, and his Savior standing to welcome him home. But at this, they, the Jewish leaders, these religious people, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul." a technical phrase, meaning that Saul of Tarsus, for so it was, was actually in charge of the execution party. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called upon God, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep, died. Well, it's a remarkable and glorious picture, isn't it? This first Christian martyr, this Christian witness who so demonstrates as the first example what real witnessing is about and how we can come through victorious. He had a revelation of heaven, see, and that's what sustained Him as the stones were ripping into His body and tearing Him apart. It was that revelation. And it wasn't that He had it At the beginning, he had it all the way through. Did you notice that? While they were stoning him, he called upon God, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The revelation was still there as he was being stoned to death. Didn't mean the pain was not real enough, didn't mean the suffering wasn't real enough, but it means there was something far greater than those things which enabled him to come through victorious maintaining that revelation, keeping Jesus in His vision. You see, this is not something which only applies to the end times. This is something that applies to you and me all the time. When we're in difficult situations, what is it that carries us through? Isn't it that revelation of heaven? That revelation of Jesus? That awareness that we are utterly, absolutely secure in God. You see, we are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God, not for us this strange modern belief that people who are saved, born again, can somehow or other fall away from the Lord's grace. We do not believe such nonsense, for so it is. We believe in a God who keeps covenant with his people. That's why there is hope for Israel. That's why there is hope for you and me, because our God is a covenant keeping God. He will never fail us. He will never forsake us. Lord Jesus, receive my Spirit, but because He was so conscious of the presence of the Lord and so filled with the Spirit of the Lord, He was able to do almost exactly what Jesus did. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Remember from the cross, our Lord Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. See, it's the same thing that confident trust in God, even though He was going through that suffering. It's a most tremendous thing. You know, it's a very different thing, isn't it, from this sort of limp religion that so many Christians seem to go in for, this strange pseudo-discipleship this strange pseudo Christianity, not at all. This is a totally different thing. This has a robustness about it, a strength about it, a might about it, which is so compelling and winsome. Does your heart not reach out for this? Don't you think to yourself, yes, that's the kind of Christianity I want? Like Stephen had, filled with revelation of heaven and of Jesus, so that I can go through whatever life brings. Triumphant. But it's not the only example, of course. You remember Paul himself. Paul had this remarkable experience in. Uh, can I find it? Probably not. Yes, I can. Can I? Yes, I can. 2 Corinthians 11. Here is Paul. He's been talking about his terrible sufferings. In chapter 11, he goes through a whole catalogue of them. It's absolutely frightful. He talks about himself in relation to some of these other so called superior apostles who are coming into Corinth and pretending that Paul is of no account. Well, Paul is forced to defend himself, and he does. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I, he says in chapter 11, verse 22. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in the city, in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. My goodness, so it goes on. How come? How is he able to to stand all this pressure and come through so victorious. Well, is the secret not in verse 12? I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. I know that this man whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now, you see, that's very interesting, isn't it? What did he have? He had a revelation of heaven. That's what he had. Fourteen years, right at the beginning of his discipleship, fourteen years previously, And it is that revelation that enabled him to go through all the suffering that was thrown at him. Just one more example before we're through. And this is Revelation 1. And this is the example of the Apostle John. John, of course, was on this island of Patmos, not because it was a holiday island, but because it was a prison island. It was a Roman place because mineral mines were found there, and you couldn't get people to work in these mines because the, the effect of the minerals was devastating on the skin. It ate you alive. The only people you could get to work there were slaves under duress, and so this is what it was. And John was there. What was he there for? Well, he tells us. He says, I was on the island of Patmos, verse 9, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, the Word of God. Because whoever met John was instantly confronted with God's Word. He couldn't keep quiet, you see. If he saw you and your life was in a mess, he would open up the Word of God to you. He would speak God's Word into your life. Some people loved that because they were changed by it. Other people hated it. Certainly the Romans hated it. They had no time for the Word of God, the very idea. But it wasn't just that. It was the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is talking about his changed life. When you met John, you saw a true disciple of Jesus who was like Jesus. And we all know that there's only one thing worse than somebody who's actually talking to you about the Word of God all the time, and that's someone who resembles Jesus, someone whose very life is a rebuke to you. When you meet him, you think, oh dear, don't want to meet him. He's a holy man. I can't cope with that. Don't like holiness. Keep as clear away from that as possible. Yes, but you see, when you met John, that's what you met. That was part of the package. You met, you encountered the holiness of Jesus. And when you did that, it again was a rebuke to you. You felt uncomfortable. You couldn't stand it. And so, therefore, again, hate the message shoot the messenger. And so the Romans did just that. They took him away and incarcerated him in this devil's island, Patmos. And that's why he was suffering. But it's so interesting, isn't it, that what made it possible for him to endure that was a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is called. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to John Why did he do that? Well, because it was for you and me. You see, this is the book of all books that we need to sustain us here in these end days. It's the end book. Something appropriate about that, isn't there? But it is the one book that is most neglected by Christians. I'm not going to do it, but if I said to you, how many of you study this book, feed in this book regularly, there wouldn't be many of you. Why not? Well, because the devil's done a very good job at hiding it away. And how sad. Look at verse 3, Revelation 1. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. i tell you this, it's a lot nearer now than it was when he wrote this. If it was important then to read it and to hear it and to take it to heart, how much more now? And yet, of all the books in the Bible, this is the one the devil tries to kid us is not appropriate for normal Christians. Oh, he'll say, you start reading and studying Revelation, you'll become peculiar. Oh, yes, people will turn away from you. They'll say he's a religious nut, because he's always talking about what's going to happen. Ah, but just a moment, that isn't the only purpose of the book of Revelation. Certainly, it does contain remarkable things concerning the sequence of events that are shortly coming upon us. Yes, but there's another great purpose to this book, and what is that? Well, it's in the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. See, that's the thing. If we neglect this book… We neglect revelation of Jesus, the very thing that we need to sustain us, revelation of heaven and revelation of Jesus. And we know what happens here. Verse 12, "'I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest.'" His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like blazing fire. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead." Just like in the song we sang just now. Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, he said. I'm he that lives. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Oh, thank you, Lord. The revelation of Jesus to John. See, this is what sustains. This is what will sustain you and me. So why don't we resolve, resolve to saturate ourselves? in revelation of Jesus. We don't just have to sit there and think to ourselves, oh yes, show me heaven, Lord. Not at all. We have the Scriptures to do it for us, the mighty revelation itself, and other Scriptures too, where we see the glory of heaven laid bare before us, presented to us, set before us as it was to the Lord Himself. Only thus, I believe, will we stand in these days. But I believe we will. Hallelujah. Victors in the field, that's what we'll be. And we'll go victorious to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not the bridesmaids, the glorious bride. And then returning to planet Earth with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning here for a thousand years. What a mystery. What a joy to anticipate. And that's only the beginning of what He has prepared for us. Hallelujah. So, Lord, we thank You and bless You. I can only imagine, that's the name of our next song, almost the last. So hang in there, the end is nigh in more ways than one.